Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 11 this morning. We are continuing our journey through this great book. <clears throat> we will be in chapter 11, verses 19, through the remainder of the chapter, verse 30. Let's begin by reading those verses. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to the Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples were determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. As I stated, we are continuing this journey through Acts. And we continue to see the growth of the gospel and in the expansion of the gospel here in this book. The title of my sermon this morning is, Gentiles Give Glory to God. Gentiles give glory to God, and I'm sure you can probably tell just from the reading of the passage why that is my title, but hope to, to bring more light to that as we continue to work through these verses. Now verse 19, it actually takes us back somewhat all the way back to chapter 8. It was there in chapter 8 that the church, church began to first be persecuted, if you recall, from the, that, uh, that passage when we went through it. As I'm sure you recall, because of this great persecution, there were many that were scattered. In fact, it says all, apart from the apostles, were scattered from Jerusalem out into various places throughout regions of Judea and Samaria. Now since this scattering there in chapter 8, since that began, Luke has chronicled some of that expansion and some of the expansion of the church following uh, that scattering from chapters 8 to chapter 11 here where we are in our passage tonight. And he continues to detail how the Lord has used that expansion to grow the church and to spread the gospel. The progression through those chapters, it really sets the context for us here in our passage today. And it sets really a main theme for us in this chapter and specifically to our passage. The inclusion and the spread of the gospel to the Gentile world, it is going to be one of the main themes of Acts from this point forward. In fact, beginning in Acts 13, Luke will begin to chronicle the ministry of Paul, which obviously included the conversion and establishment of many Gentile churches. But here in our, our, our passage in verse 19, we're told that those that were scattered from Jerusalem when that persecution had begun, they eventually made their way into three main areas by the time we get to chapter 11. We're told that it's Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. If you remember, again, back in chapter 8, the, those Jews who were scattered from Jerusalem, they didn't just go into these areas, hide, and, and just start living life apart from Christ or apart from the gospel. No, those who began to be scattered, even from this great persecution, 
they began to preach the gospel in the areas they went to, right? And just as we were told there in chapter 8, we're told here, those scattered and persecuted there in Jerusalem, they went out preaching the Word, preaching the Gospel. Luke says that they traveled to these areas speaking the Word. The Word of the Lord. The Word which is the Gospel of Jesus, right? We're yet again reminded, as we look at this example for us, that we do not have to seek out persecution. We don't have to want persecution. None of us want that. And nor is it wrong to, for us to flee it, if, if possible, if that were to come. But persecution should never make us ashamed of the Gospel. It should never drive us away from telling others of what Christ has done for us if we have truly been converted and truly been changed by Christ. Now Luke makes note here that they, they only preached, some of these began to only preach to other Jews. At least... Some of them were only preaching to other Jews. Now, the next verse will expand on that some, but it seems that, again, most of these that were scattered, these, these Jews, which were coming from Jerusalem originally, they were only preaching to the Jews as they went out. And I guess it's easy as we read that and, and we think on that initially, kind of to, to think that despite their courage and their zeal for the Lord and for the gospel and the spread of, of the truth of Jesus, they were wrong and only preaching to the Jews, right? And I think that's, that's probably right to say that. I mean, we know that they should have done differently. They should have thought differently. And, and we can even base that purely on the fact that Jesus, when He ascended, or prior to Him ascending, when He was teaching the disciples there, He told the apostles that they were to make disciples after He ascended. They were going to make disciples in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the world, right? To the ends of the earth. So, I mean, the, the, the edict there from Christ was, was initially, it was going to go, the gospel was going to go to the whole world. It wasn't meant to stay just to the Jews. And, and surely the apostles, as they began to teach others, began to teach that church there in Jerusalem, they, they taught them what Jesus had told them. They, you know, they, they told them the same message. But you, you also have to understand the mindset of the Jews at this time. They had been raised under the law and under certain traditions and certain thought processes. They were, they were risen and taught under a law that was given directly to them, directly to the Jews first and primarily. As Paul wrote in Romans 9, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. That's the truth of the Israelites. That's the truth of what they, they were given, what they were taught. And so they had significant privilege and they had significant blessing from God. You might be surprised to know, though, that there, there was nowhere in the law that forbid the Gentiles from making sacrifices in the temple or from worshiping Yahweh in much the same way that a common Jew would. Now, obviously, not many Gentiles ever took part in temple worship because the vast majority of the Gentiles prior to the this dispensation, prior to the church, the coming of the church, most of the, the Gentiles, they worshipped other gods, pagan gods, false gods, who, uh, who obviously you know, were, were not part of temple worship, should not have been part of temple worship there to Yahweh. And, and many of those Gentiles were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean because of their, their practices and their lifestyle. So again, many and most Gentiles did not take part in temple worship but for any Gentile who wished to follow the law and present themselves to Yahweh ceremonially clean, just as the Jew, 
then they were welcome to under the Mosaic, Mosaic law. Cornelius, in fact, who we've just kind of read through, read about, and, and, uh, and been talking about, is, is an example of that. The Jews had grown, though, to hate Gentiles by the time that Jesus had come. And, and they had put up this great barrier to the Gentile, even within the temple. They had what was called the Court of the Gentiles, which had, had been erected in a place that was on the very outer portion of the temple. And, and no Gentile could go past that point. Only Jews could go past that point. Because of this not really non-biblical tradition, this, this first generation of the Jewish church already had some barriers then that they struggled concerning God and the Gentiles, right? They had some, tr- tr- some tradition that was built into their way of worship and their way of thinking. We can be the same way if we're not careful. We have to have Bible first and only and not let tradition dictate how we think and what we do with, with the gospel and with our lives. But th- there, there's more too. Those that were scattered, they were not the only believers who struggled with this idea of the gospel only being meant to be preached to the Jews instead of the Gentiles. Again, we just finished our study of Peter there in the beginning of chapter 11, who was one of the apostles. He, he himself had gotten direct instruction from Jesus on how this was to be the pattern moving forward, how Gentiles were to be included. And, and he, was, he was given that pattern you know, at the there before Christ ascended, yet God still saw fit to come to him and give him a dream to let him know and remind him that Gentiles were to be included in part of of the worship. Cornelius was to be that example in in his household. The gospel was to go into them, and and, and he was to be confident in that. He was to take that to the church there in Jerusalem. And it really took Peter... Going through that, going through the, the, the example there, having that dream, relaying that dream to the, the church there in Jerusalem, and the, the works that came after he went to the house of Cornelius, it took him relaying all that to the church there in Jerusalem for them to, to finally see that that was right and that they, to get on board, so to speak. I mean, it was there at the, the, in verse 18 at the end of last sermon where they finally you know, they, they responded. They said, then... To the Gentiles, it said, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this was just something that was built into the Jews they struggled with for some time and and up to this point. According to verse 20, though, not all of these Jews that had been scattered restricted the word to just the Jews. No, some, as we're told, some men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they went to Antioch. And instead of just preaching to the Jews, they began witnessing to the Hellenists. Now don't be thrown off here by the ESV translation of this word Hellenists. This is the literal translation. And there are two previous times in which Luke has, has used this same word, this same term to describe, describe Jews. In Acts 6, it was the Hellenists who complained because their widows were being neglected. And in Acts 9, Paul spoke and disputed against the Hellenists there in Damascus after his conversion. In both of those chapters, the context of that passage made it clear that the Hellenists were referring to Jews only who spoke Greek and accepted some of the Greek culture, unlike some of the Jews who just utterly rejected the Greek culture entirely. So naturally, because of that, as we get to this term Hellenist here in our passage, there is some debate as to what Luke Meant, but due to the context and the flow of this verse, I don't think there really should be 
debate. Verse 19 states and told us that the, this group that had been scattered, these Jews, they had only spoke to the Jews, right? And then verse 20, it draws a clear distinction by saying, but some spoke to the Hellenists. Every good commentator that I, I read agrees that these Hellenists here in this passage, they're referring to Gentiles, they're referring to, to Greeks, and this also follows, follows the flow of Acts. It follows the flow of what Luke has been showing us over these last couple of chapters, how the gospel was meant to go to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews, and the church will be made up of every ethnicity. Also, nearly every single translation outside of the ESV, it chooses to translate this word instead of Hellenist. It translates it Greek or Greeks. The ESV isn't wrong, again, in their translation. As I said, it's the most literal translation, but Luke is speaking of Greeks or Gentiles here. That is, that is who these men went to and preached the Word to. Let me say this also. This doesn't mean that the Gospel wasn't being preached to the Jews there in Antioch. It's not like they went to Antioch and only preached to the Gentiles. No, it was still being preached to the, the Jews. There was a large population of Jews there in, in Antioch, but we know from Paul's letter that the Galatians, uh, the, 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 to the Galatians, that there was a, uh, a group of Jews and Greeks there in the church at Antioch, both circumcised and circumcised members there. So it's just that the focus of this passage, what Luke is focusing on and he's, he's wanting uh, his readers to know, is that the gospel was being preached to the Gentiles here, now by these men, which had been a, a vast departure from the previous norm of anyone going out and preaching the gospel. So some of these men begin to preach the word, the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles in Antioch. And, and what they found was a group of people that were eager to hear the truth. They were eager to hear of this Jesus and to know the one true God as opposed to those dead pagan gods that they had been worshiping. Luke tells us in verse 21 that God was with these men, so He was with their message. Specifically, He was with their message to these Greeks, these Gentiles. God gave the increase here, we see. We, we see believers begin to come about because of the planted Word. The message was spoken, but God had to be with it, right? Again, we see the direction of this book in the church here. It is expanding and, and God is showing that He was behind the expansion of the gospel in the church to the Gentiles. And we also see here both the saving power is in God. It is in God alone. There's no question that God gives the increase. He chooses to use men and women though to plant that seed. We are to be about preaching the gospel and planting the gospel seed and then rely on God to do the work after that. These men, they took the Word to the Gentiles, they planted the seed, and God chose to give life to that seed. And that is always the pattern that we see in Scripture. Now, it's important for us to see, as we work through this passage, what exactly is going on here. And in what Luke is, what picture he's painting, what, uh, that, what Barnabas would eventually come upon here in a minute, and what these, these men were preaching to there in Antioch. Luke is really painting a, pure, a clear picture for us of that early church in these verses. Just in the fact that the gospel was preached and believed by Gentiles in, the, in Antioch, it, it begins to again show us what that early church looked like. Antioch was a, a major city in the Roman Empire. It was located roughly 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So by this point, by the time we get here, the gospel has really it has moved significantly. Right, It has gone out a great deal. Satan had tried to snuff out the gospel earlier and entirely there in Jerusalem, but instead of snuffing it out, he had created a wildfire, and the gospel had just blown up and grown. 
And, and we continue to see that over and over in Acts. No matter what Satan has tried, he'll never thwart the will and the plan of God. And that is immediately recognizable here in just the, the account of the Gospel going out to these, these places. But uh, accounts of the population there in Antioch, they vary, but uh, it was no less. There's no one that believes there's any less than 200,000 people, the population there in the city. And it could have been upwards of 500,000 or more of people that live there in that city. It was the third largest uh, city there in the, in the Roman Empire at this point. It was located right off the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a port. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of people coming in and out by ship there. It was inhabited by Greeks, by Syrians, by Phoenicians, by Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, and Indians. And, and as I stated earlier, it had a large contingent of Jews who lived there as well. Really... Antioch was like a modern-day melting pot. I mean, there were just people from all walks of life, all types of cultures, just every, everything you can think of existed there. Every person you could think of existed, existed there in Antioch and, and lived together. So, as, this, as the, the Gospel began to go out and, and go to the, the Gentiles along with the Jews, what we see there in that early church is just it is a melting pot of believers. It is a, a group of people coming from all different walks of life coming together to serve the same risen Christ. It, it's really a supernatural picture that we get. I mean, even when we go back to Jerusalem, there was a unique worship there in that first church in Jerusalem among the Jews, a supernatural worship and a love that the city witnessed. I mean, there were people that were rich and poor. There were women and men that were coming together to, to worship. There were all kinds of Jews from different backgrounds there in that city that worshiped together, that loved, that, that gave all they had to each other in that supernatural love that Christ had given them. And then as it continues to expand here in our passage, and we see here the church in Antioch, all barriers were broken down by the blood of Christ. We see all kinds of people coming together that would never have associated with each other outside of the church. And here they are coming together as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, loving each other with a unique and supernatural love, becoming a body, becoming a family. There's nothing other than a supernatural love that can do that. A supernatural love that only Christ can give. As their, their word here in Antioch continued to grow, there were more and more that believed. According to verse 22, it tells us that the news of this, the, the Greeks here being converted, they had, who had turned back to the Lord, it began to reach back there to that church in Jerusalem. And it's significant then that we've just gotten finished learning about Peter going to the church there in Jerusalem and the conversion of Cornelius, right? I mean, it's no accident that that's, that's happened right before we learn of that, right before this news reaching Jerusalem. This drastic declaration that God had granted repentance and that leads to life to the Gentiles there in Jerusalem, it has a significant impact as this news of the Gentiles being converted in Antioch comes back to them. That dam had been broken, so to speak. That barrier had already been broken down and led by Peter there as he brought that news back to the church. Luke tells us that the church in Jerusalem then, as they got this news, they sent Barnabas to this group here in Antioch. Now, Barnabas was not an apostle nor was he part of the seven that were chosen back in chapter 6 to serve. We, of course, know who Barnabas is, though. We've been introduced to Barnabas. Luke wrote about him twice already. This is the third time. More re most recently, Luke had told us that he was the man who, who brought converted Saul 
of Tarsus to the apostles there when Saul went back to Jerusalem. He's the one that kind of broke down that barrier between Saul and the church there in Jerusalem. Barnabas was from, excuse me, from Cyprus, which was an island that was located 50 to 100 miles west of Antioch. And many of the people from Cyprus, which was an island, uh, again, they would travel on, on ship by ship from Cyprus to Antioch. So Barnabas was likely very familiar with that area which is, uh, I'm sure, a, a, very, uh, or a reason why they sent Barnabas. They chose to send Barnabas to, to, uh, to uh, Antioch to check out what was going on there. But Barnabas was certainly a trusted man there in Jerusalem, in the church. There. He was trusted by the apostles. He was, trust, he was trusted by the church. He'd shown himself to be a very faithful and trustworthy man. We aren't told that he was a deacon or an elder there in Jerusalem, though. He didn't hold any position like that, but he was just a man that the church felt very comfortable sending and trusted to go check out what was going on there in an area in which he was from. Now, while we're here, I want to take just a minute to touch on the purpose of this passage. And I've kind of touched on the purpose of it already, so I guess maybe a better way to put it, I want to touch on what I don't think the purpose of this passage is. And I don't want to camp here too long, but... I do want to take a few minutes just to, to mention this. It's important that we see patterns and examples in Scripture. Right? I mean, it's, we, we aren't given every single specific instruction in God's Word as to what we are to do uh, all of the time for every single thing. I mean, for instance, we aren't told that we're to get up here and sing three songs before we preach, have a prayer request, or have a, a prayer in the middle of that, then preach. And, you know, it, it, if we decide to sing one song before we preach, and then two songs after, or one song before and no songs after, whatever it might be, or preach first, then sing. None of that's mandated in Scripture. We aren't given specific instructions on that. We, we're given some liberty on that. But here in, in our passage, we have an example of something that many have considered to be a pattern for us to follow as, as churches by the church hearing of these Gentiles, this, this group, having believed in the Lord and then sending Barnabas to check on this group in Antioch. And there have been, made, there have been some assumptions made in light of this chapter. Most significantly, the assumption some have made here is that when the church there in Jerusalem heard of these new believers, then decided to send Barnabas to the, this group in Antioch, they did so for the express purpose of, of making them a, a church. Barnabas was sent with the express purpose to authorize and organize them into the, an official church so they could then, at that point, have the authority, authority to go forth as a church. While I do think that this passage will bear out, bear out that Barnabas and later Paul, they did teach and assist in guiding these new believers, and that's the significant purpose of them being there, I don't think that we can make the assumption that the purpose of Barnabas being sent to this group was to actually organize them or authorize them to officially become a, a, a church. Not based on what the passage actually tells us. We should remember that this is very early on in the church, right? There is still a lot unknown, a lot of, of new for the church and for believers. As I've already said, Antioch was a long ways away from Jerusalem. The Gentiles were just now beginning to be evangelized and fully accepted by Jewish believers. Further, the apostles were, they were still alive. They were very involved in the building of the foundation of the church, as Scripture teaches us over and over. The revelation that we have, the full revelation we have now today, was far from complete at this point. Why then would they send or choose to send Barnabas to Antioch after learning that there was a group of, of believers there, Gentiles specifically, uh, there in, in Antioch? 
I think we can keep on reading and keep on learning, and I think we'll hear and we'll get a clear a picture of what, what that purpose is. In, in verse 23, we're told that as soon as Barnabas reached Antioch, he saw the grace of God. So it seems clear that the grace of God here that Barnabas saw as he got to Antioch was the real and genuine faith of these men and women in, in Jesus. From these Gentiles, he saw genuine faith. Faith which is only the product of the grace of God. Then, what do we see from Barnabas once he, he sees the grace of God in the proof of their conversion? He rejoiced, right? He, he began then to encourage them. He began to exhort them to remain in the Lord, remain true to the Lord. Barnabas recognized that this was a group of, of new believers. He wanted to see them remain faithful. Even if persecution came, which you know their, their conversion was the product of persecution, and even if that came to them, or the temptation came to them to turn back to their pagan roots, turn back to sin, he began to encourage them, no, stay true. He exhorted them to remain in the way. As the verse goes on to indicate, Barnabas encouraged them to be deliberate and purposeful in their newfound faith here in Jesus. And, and I think this is such a great example for us today. It's important for us to take new believers by the hand and to teach and encourage them to stay true to their faith in Christ. Sometimes new believers can still struggle with balancing that old life with the life that God has called them to. I mean, we can all struggle with that sometimes. Don't get me wrong. We all have our old nature. We all still sin. We all struggle with that. But as new believers, a lot of times they're still trying to find that, that balance. They're trying to figure out what, what friends they can still have, what, you know, where they can go, what they should be maybe listening to or, or talking about or who they should be around. All of those things, they're, they're trying to figure out that balance and that struggle. Unfortunately, we can get this idea sometimes that once someone is saved, well then they're just they're ready to immediately cut off all their worldly habits and cut off every problem that they, they previously had and they're ready to just go forward and never struggle with sin again. I mean, we know that not to be, not, that's not true, but it's almost like we have that idea. But new believers are, are they're, they're struggling too, right? They, they struggle with their sin nature. That sanctification process it is a process. It's not something that just happens overnight and it continues to take place until we die. It can take months or years of sanctification and immersion into the Word of God for a believer to maybe stop struggling with a certain sin or be unaffected by the influence of some family or friends around them. And don't get me wrong, there will be a noticeable change. I don't want to I don't want to act like there's not going to be a noticeable change in a true conversion. And there's not going to be consistent and outright living in sin for a new, in one specific sin that, that, that's noticeable for a new believer. There will be that change, but that, that doesn't mean there won't be struggle. We should all see a change in our lives, but we should be there for new believers as, as they're trying to make that change and, and they're trying to, to change who they're around, the life that they're living, to live more for God. And that's exactly what Barnabas began doing when he, he reached Antioch. He just did that on a broad scale as he saw this big group of believers here. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, speaking of, of, of Barnabas, he speaks very highly of him. In verse 24, Luke gives him a, a similar description as, as he gave Stephen and Philip a couple of chapter go, uh, chapters ago. He calls him a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas' Barnabas's profession, was, it was not just words. 
He didn't just profess it and then go live out how He wanted to or for Himself. His life was full of the fruit of the Spirit. From the first time that we were introduced to Him back in chapter 4, we saw a man who was a, a giver, an encourager. He was willing to sacrifice Himself so that others would be blessed and have more. There in chapter 4. He is one of the more faithful men, I think, that we see in Acts. In this passage, we see a man who, who rejoiced as he got there and rejoiced in these new believers and, and he gave himself to them, himself to them. He counted their good as greater than his own. Now remember again, Antioch was some 300 miles away from Jerusalem. This was not just an overnight trip for Barnabas to get there. It wasn't just some quick, easy trip. He took the, uh, a flight over there one night, he, he checked it out, he came back the next day. Uh, this is a, a lengthy, hard trip for Barnabas. And it seems that he stayed there for some period of time because in verse 24, we're told that a great many people were added to the Lord once he got there. And as this group of believers grew to a great many people, Barnabas, it seems he decided that it was wise to, to go then to Paul to get some assistance, to get further teaching for these, this group. He didn't go back to the church of Jerusalem though, right? He, according to verse 25, Barnabas left Antioch to go find Saul. Barnabas likely went to find Saul instead of going back to, to Jerusalem uh, to bring Peter or maybe another apostle in large part because Tarsus was, was much closer. Now when I say much closer, I don't mean like it was, again, just right over the hill. It was still about 150, to 100, 150 miles one way to get to Tarsus, but that's about half the trip it was to get back to Jerusalem. So Paul was, was obviously closer there in, in Tarsus to Antioch than Jerusalem was. But it's also possible that Barnabas knew God intended to send Paul to the Gentiles. That that was going to be a, the, the primary thrust of his ministry. He was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he, he believed Paul to be best suited to come to this group of Gentiles here in Antioch to teach I, I do know that one thing that we can see here in Barnabas going to get Paul he saw the importance of having this new group of believers get a good foundation. Get a good foundation in God's Word. And he knew that the Apostle Paul was much more qualified to do that than he was. So he went to get that help. Barnabas served a great purpose though before he went to this church here. Again, he exhorted, he encouraged them, and, and he, it appeared he was part of the spreading of the Gospel in Antioch. But again, Barnabas doesn't seem to be pastoring them. He wasn't sent to equip them in that way, to teach them as an apostle or even a pastor would. But he knew they needed that. So that's exactly why he went to get Paul. So he goes to Tarsus to seek out Saul. And Saul is mentioned here for the first time since we saw him leave Jerusalem and set sail for Tarsus back in chapter 9. Now, it was only two chapters ago, but a lot of time has actually passed since that chapter, since... Paul had left Jerusalem and went to Tarsus. There's roughly seven to ten years there since Paul had left Jerusalem before we get to this chapter, before we get to this, this uh, time where Barnabas is going to get him there in, in Tarsus. Now, we don't know, we don't know for sure, we aren't told what he was doing during those years while he was in Tarsus. There's plenty of speculation, as you can imagine, and, and Scripture uh, I think may give us some clues. It's, it's been suggested that some of Paul's hardships that he listed in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, they were suffered there during this time. According to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says that he'd suffered in 
the loss of all things for the sake of Christ. So many believe that as he went back to Tarsus, which was his home, which is where his family would have been uh, been located and, and at, that as he was there, he was disinherited. He was rejected by his family. It's very possible, though, that he had been preaching to the Jews and the Gentiles both in and around Tarsus during, during this time. We obviously know that Paul had a real zeal and passion for Jesus after his conversion. So it's hard to imagine that he just sat quietly for this you know, almost decade. And, and according to Acts 22, Paul's giving his personal account of when he went to Jerusalem that first time and before he left. And, and he tells us that God told him, Go, for I will send you away, far away to the Gentiles. So it's easy to assume that Paul was about that ministry, even while he was there in Tarsus. In those years before Barnabas came to him, but whatever he was doing, whatever he was doing before or even up to this point, verse 26 indicates that Barnabas went to get him. It took some effort for Barnabas to find him and to get him. Uh, he, he looked for some time there. He went up and down Tarsus. That's the, the literal meaning of that to find Paul. But he did find him and he brought him back to Antioch. And then we're told that Saul and Barnabas they stayed there in Antioch for a year to teach and instruct the, the church. Again, this is clearly then the purpose of, of why Barnabas went seeking out Paul, was to come to Antioch to teach and to prepare a good foundation for this church. And then we get this little nugget here in verse 26, that this was the first place where believers were called Christians. We throw that term around pretty, uh, pretty often today. I mean, we're all, I think, you know, we would all call each other Christians, be known as Christians. It's just a, a common term today for anyone who believes in, in Jesus and, and that follows Christ. But it was the first time that anybody was called a Christian here in Antioch. This term, it consists of the Greek word for Christ or Messiah, Christos, with the Latin ending, Ionis. I'm sure I've butchered that, but it, that Latin ending, it means belonging to or identified by. So according to John Stott, it seems that the unbelieving public there in Antioch, they were famed for their wit and their, their nicknaming. They, they supposed that the unbelieving, I mean that the, 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 the folks there that began to believe in Jesus, they thought that this, this Jesus, this Christ, that was his, his name, that Jesus Christ. I think some, a lot of people think that today too, that Jesus Christ is like his last name. But they didn't see that as, as, his, as a title instead, which is what that is. And so they began to, to call his followers these uh, Christians. At some point after Barnabas got to Antioch, though, likely even after Saul got there, verse 26 to 27 tells that the church there in Jerusalem, they sent prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch. This was likely to support that work there in the church there in Antioch. And then we're told one of these prophets by the name of Agabus, he gave a, a future prophecy of this great famine over the whole world. Now the whole world was a term commonly used at the time for the known world or the inhabited world, which primarily encompassed their, their, that Roman Empire. And, and this is uh, likely not the only prophecy that Scripture attributes to this man, this man Agabus. According to chapter 21 of Acts, a man by the same name would later prophesy uh, the coming arrest of, of Paul there in Jerusalem before he was then eventually taken off uh, to Rome. But we're told that this, this prophecy it did in fact come true during the time or the reign of Claudius. And, and Claudius ruled from AD 41 to AD 54. So this prophecy would have taken, both taken place during his reign and come to fulfillment during his reign. 
And you can look at some history accounts. There are several history accounts of widespread famine during his reign, including a, a, a great one that was marked by the Jewish historian Josephus, which oppressed the people of, of Judea. He said that so many people died for want of what was necessary to procure, procure food. So there was a great famine that caused, caused many deaths there in Judea. And then according to verses 29 and 30, in response to this prophecy, the, the people there in Antioch, the church there in Antioch, they sent relief to the Christians in Judea by the hand of Barnabas and Saul once they went back. So we see here shades of what happened in Jerusalem there in that, that, in, in that early church when the first uh, church began to bloom there in Jerusalem. There, according to Acts 4, you know, we, we, we read and we know where the whole body there began to sell things, give away things, give away all their goods to each other so that they could all support each other, support the poor primarily, and be all of one accord there in the church. It says that they had all things in common. We kind of see shades of that here in our passage. Not quite that drastic of an approach by these in Antioch, but we certainly see believers sacrificing them for, for the good of others, sacrificing themselves for the good of others, specifically the other believers. Believers, and this principle is really a character, uh, a characteristic of the family of God. It, I mean, as we see account after account in Scripture of uh, of those sacrificing, giving to other believers, loving other believers, that's what we're called to do—to be there for each other, to love each other, to sacrifice ourselves, whether that be monetarily or, or physically or mentally or emotionally, whatever it, it might be. We sacrifice for each other for the good of our fellow brother and sister. We shouldn't miss the emphasis here then, as we conclude that in the unity among the Gentiles here in Antioch and the Jews, this very mixed and perhaps predominantly Gentile church there in Antioch, they're sending aid to this almost exclusively Jewish area. These Jewish churches in Judea is definitely the pattern that we see here in God's church and in the purpose of God's church, that unity. Again, going back to that supernatural love. All right, a couple of things as we conclude, just as application and to think about. First, let me mention that the gospel ministry, again, and we've been touching on this throughout the passage, it really opens up to the Gentiles here. That is the theme that will continue through Acts. Again, not that the gospel was no longer meant for the Jews, it certainly was and is, but God clearly meant for salvation to come to Jews, I mean, come to the Gentiles and for corporate worship in the church to include Gentiles. And that is the emphasis we continue to get. They were no lesser believers than the Jews, but they were co heirs with them, right? And, you know, we should be thankful for that, right? We're, we're a product of that today. We are Gentiles ourselves. I mean, if this had not been the pattern, if this had not been part of the, 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 what we see in Acts, we, we, would very good deal or very good likelihood we wouldn't be sitting here today as believers and, and uh, trusting in Christ as our Savior. So I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for what God did for us through this explosion and through the opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. Second, even though I don't think our passage was meant to teach churches starting churches or even proper organization of a church necessarily, it does certainly teach us about church, proper church foundation. And this is what I mean. The church there, they needed guidance. They needed pastoring built on the teaching of the apostles, built on the, the Word of God, right? Any group out there, then or today, that does not have this foundation, the foundation of the teaching of the apostles, they are not built on the truth of God's Word. And they are really a pretender to be avoided unless they are willing to accept a proper foundation, which is the Word of God. That is the proper foundation. 
Lastly, and, and I've touched on this already, but I think this is such a, a beautiful point and such a wonderful point for us to think about. The church we see here and what the church was meant to be was a supernatural picture of love that is countercultural to anything else out in the world. That is what we are meant to be. We are meant to all come together no matter what our, what our background is, no matter where we, we come from, what our, our previous teachings have been, no matter you know, whether we're rich or poor, whether we, we cheer for Auburn or Alabama or... Um, kidding, Blake. It doesn't matter what we come from, where we come from, we all come together in belief in Christ and supernatural love in Christ. And that's really the picture that the world should see of the church. They should see a supernatural love they can't see anywhere else. And as we come together... We come together as a body, a family, willing to do anything and everything that we need to do for each other. We set aside our own personal wants, desires for our fellow brother and sister. We love each other as a family. And, and, and I think we can miss out on that sometimes. Here in modern day America, I guess, we kind of separate ourselves sometimes more than we should. And we, we let our, our personal background maybe keep us from going to certain people or talking to certain people. But... We shouldn't let that, let that happen. That's not, what the church, that's not the early picture of the church. That's not what God has intended for us to do. As long as we believe and trust in Christ, we're all brothers and sisters. And we're to, to unify around that. Right? All right, stand with me.